And I knew that I hadn't been to an event that felt like this. I felt like after leaving most social events, I felt exhausted. But after this, I felt inspired and recharged. And I was like, hmm, that was cool. Like, maybe we should do it again in like a year or something. And as people were leaving, they were like, oh, like, when's the next one? And before I could stop myself, I said, oh, yeah, we do this once a month. And then they were like, oh, well, what's the name of it? And I was like, um, we're a collective of creatives. We're the creative collective. And I just said it. And from there, what we had realized is we were outgrowing my apartment. There were 40 people in a Harlem apartment. From there, we were able to move into our first venue. We had no budget, but we said, oh, we'll, we'll, we'll tweet about you. And we just kept growing. It starts with just taking that leap. Man, you have to work hard. You have to be incredibly smart. Choose something that even if it fails, even if it fails you are going to be proud of. Does it matter how badly you got beat? Be kind, be kind, be kind. Become a better person, a better leader, a better business. Go for that. <laughs> I'm Samuel Donner, and this is Finding Founders. Today we're talking to Amani Ellis. Amani is the visionary behind the Creative Collective NYC, a community and creative agency for people of color. And she also started CultureCon, a conference for burgeoning creatives. So for over a decade, Amani has climbed the ranks of various big name organizations, tirelessly pursuing community along the way. And now Amani strives to foster a space that uplifts black and brown communities by fusing creativity with culture, all while channeling the same relentless determination and contagious optimism that broke barriers throughout her youth. We'll get into that shortly, but to understand the foundation of Amani's character, we'll have to start by introducing the two people who raised her. You grew up with two pastors as parents. Two pastors as parents. They met in Bible college. You know, my parents specifically worked like in the prison system. So like they would, yeah, so they were missionaries at state penitentiaries. And so they'd come home with like jewelry and all of these things from the different inmates. At one time, my dad was a pastor at an Air Force base. So we were living all over the Southeast. And so we finally landed in Atlanta. What stories were they coming back with? I think one of the things, especially that was, I don't know, touching to me was the humanity of it all. Like they would come home with bracelets that would say like Imani, Aisha, like the inmates would make gifts. When you were moving around a lot, did you have like a community that you returned to? A thousand percent, it was my family first. No matter wherever we moved around, I had my sisters. And so they were my best friends. But you're exactly right. You know, after family, it was definitely the church. We were going to Bible study. I mean, that's where I got my first crush. You know, I really liked it. And I I think it was it was community. And for me, it kind of created this thread of like, I love this feeling. I love being around all of these people. How would you define that at that age or like what was community at that point to you? It was definitely this space where I just felt that you were just your full self. You felt so safe. We were running around these churches with like red Kool-Aid because, you know, you had to call it red, not cherry. It was just this, this pure joy. 
as I got older, you know, you start becoming more self-aware of like your surroundings and who you are and how you're being perceived. But when you're younger, you just don't know what you don't know. And, and I think that was, I don't know, I loved it. I really did. Monty's right. When you're a kid, all you know is what is in front of you, what you're feeling, what you've learned in school. The complexities and nuances of life, well, they don't really exist in the mind of a five-year-old. And that's what I think is reflected so well in the little gifts that inmates made for Amani and her sisters. Her dad was face-to-face with the inmates, their stories, the unimaginable hardship. But Amani didn't see that. What she saw were the small beaded bracelets that turned up on holidays. Like Amani said, when you're a kid, you don't know what you don't know. But what she did know was that these bracelets, in some way or another, connected her with the people who made them. She was experiencing another kind of community, one that looked different from fish fries and red Kool-Aid at church, and it had expanded her world. But soon, a different community would be opening its doors. You mentioned like not knowing how you were perceived. I feel like that that relates really interestingly to your career as a ballerina. Like you did it for 14 years. You were the first black ballerina in 75 years in the Atlanta ballet. Is that correct? Yeah, that's right. I was. That alone like, is a, like a representation of there maybe are these forces outside of that community that view you differently. Like, did you feel that? Did you notice that as like you continued to do ballet? You know, it's so, um, there's always a story I always remember because I think this was the moment I realized that there was difference. I was auditioning for the Nutcracker at the Atlanta Ballet and it was just like a fairly, really big competition. I mean, you know, I had done the Nutcracker two years before. I was like a little party girl and I think I was a soldier. And I thought, okay, maybe this is the year I'll get to be a fairy. You know, I'm really gonna put my, you know, best foot forward and the audition takes place and you're all sitting you know cross-legged on the floor rows of 10 as, as far as you can see just ballerinas and their buns and you know Sharon Story who was the dean she calls out your number one by one I mean it's literally your stomachs and knots because she hands you a sheet of paper and on the sheet of paper is your role and I remember sitting there and she called out everyone else's number and at first you're just like oh that's okay okay and it I remember feeling a cold sweat like oh my gosh I haven't gotten chosen for anything and I'm the very last person and she goes Imani and and I go up and she hands me a sheet of paper I'm so embarrassed I, I think the paper says you're fired like you're you're not good enough for any of the roles so I don't even look at the paper I just take it to my chest I run down the stairs I'm like so embarrassed everyone else has been called my mom is like hey like is everything okay like what what's your role and I hand her the sheet of paper and she goes Imani it says Clara that's the that's the main role of the next author and I'm like wait what But the moment that I'll never forget is the mom who was standing right next to my mom who looks at me and was like, wait, what? The look of disbelief, it kind of scared me. That was the beginning of me kind of being afraid of greatness and yet still wanting it. It's a very interesting, I think, relationship that I've always had with fear where I felt this calling on my life and still I've kind of been like unsure 
if it's all in my head or if it's real. Wait, why the fear? Because like you're testing whether it's all in your head or it's real? I think because, you know, you're kind of double guessing your abilities. Me getting that role, what it told me is that Sharon, Miss Story, she saw something in me that I did not see in myself. And I think as I look back at other parts of my life, you know, um, you know, getting different jobs or starting different functions, I kind of feel like there have always been people in my life who have seen something in me that I'm just like, really? And I think what I've really been trying to lean into is that it, it can be you. You could be the one. And I think it started with ballet. Amani could be the one, and she was. And I just want to put this in perspective. Like I mentioned before, Amani was the first black ballerina in 75 years at the Atlanta Ballet. And as of last year, they hadn't had a black female dancer since 2018. Doesn't make a lot of sense in a city where the black community comprises over 50% of the population, but it's the reality. And in a field dominated by white dancers, black dancers are often left feeling like they're held to an especially high standard. Amani doesn't go into much depth about this, what it felt like to actually be Clara, but I imagine a similar pressure was felt. And mixed up in the desire to prove herself to others was the desire to prove her abilities to herself. While others could see Amani's potential, fully seeing what they see has been a work in progress. Ballet, however, wasn't the only place where Amani would shatter ceilings. I want to go from ballet to track. So yeah, after 14 years, I wasn't as inspired as I had once been about ballet. I loved it, but um, it was a lot of sacrifice. I did ballet seven days a week, about four to six hours a day. As much as it formed and shaped self-discipline, and it, it really was amazing, I just kind of was like, okay, I think I'm ready to try something new. And so I was I was in high school at this point. I was a junior, and my friend Ashley was like, Amani, can you come with me to track tryouts tomorrow? And I'm like, uh, I don't want to run track. Why should I run track? And she's like, listen, they give you money to run track. So the next day, we go to track tryouts. And the little competitor in me is just, I took off. Like, I i was like, I'm not going to lose. I like gave it all that I had. And I made varsity. And because of ballet, I ended up doing hurdles. <laughs> My dad, like, played basketball, um, Western Kentucky, so competitive. I'm really like my mom, too, but when it comes to, like, being competitive, I am my my father's child. And so what would happen is, you know, I just didn't want to lose. I mean, that really is the bottom line. I just, I wanted to win. But here's the thing, Sam, I had terrible, terrible fear of running. But again, I had just started running that year and I was up against these girls who had been having private track coaches since they were like nine months old. And it was intimidating. You would go out to the blocks, they would like stretch their calves and I would wear these like huge bows in my hair. And my coach was like, here's the deal. You can wear those bows in your hair as long as you're winning. When you lose, you have to take these bows out of your hair. And for my junior year, I won every single meet except for state. At state, I came in third place, but I broke my school record. But 
ask anybody who's run 300 hurdles, 400 hurdles, it, it feels like you're going to die. And yet you have to keep going. <laughs> I think most 300, 400 hurdlers can attest this. But by the time you get to 200 meters in, you really think your legs are going to give out beneath you. But Amani's didn't. 14 years of point work in piquet and ballet primed her to master hurdling technique, allowing her to closely clear the hurdles that lined the track in front of her. Adrenaline and determination carried her through success after success, and the fear that loomed earlier began to sink back into the distance, alongside her competitors. Now, the same sport that had carried her to state championships was about to carry her to Vanderbilt. What role did track play as you moved into college? And what were you thinking like you would use this for as you like thought about what you wanted to do with your life? I think it was really a vehicle for me. I knew that I wanted to work in some sort of community slash entertainment facility. I knew that that was like my bigger calling. Um, I mean, I went to the Vanderbilt Television Club and they were like, hey, like if you want to do your own show we'll give you your own show. And so I raised my hand and I said, I'm going to do a show called It's Amani. And I just- What was that show like? Oh. (laughs) It was a mix between Wendy Williams and the Watch What Happens Live show, which was ironic. I had no idea I'd end up working for Watch What Happens Live a few years later, but I I was a student athlete and a lot of my friends were student athletes, these huge football stars, but to me, they were just my friends. And so they would come on my show and we would do like dating segments and just all of these different things. Um, and I had I had three seasons of It's Amani. And then I, I put up my, my hat and I said, you know what? I think I prefer being behind the scenes I don't think I want to be like a talk show host were you scared to do that because was it was that same fear associated with like starting the show as there was with being a ballerina and, and doing track I don't think so you know I'll tell you I've only felt that level of fear three times ballet track and culture con everything else feels like another day like nothing can really scare me like those three things I really was taught from a young age and it goes back to ballet and it goes back to childhood is that if you work hard and you want something and you're disciplined that you can you can have it. And so I always understood that like working hard beats talent. I always understood that, you know, um, being self-disciplined and diligent and you know, not missing the details led to reward. I guess I just wasn't conscious that that's what I was doing. So like I was writing scripts at night and I was applying to all these internships. And I guess there just was this inner longing that was like, you work hard, you have a dream, said dream can come true. Her sense of discipline and commitment had overrode her fear. And if this was the case for running for ballet, then why wouldn't it be true for everything else? She's beginning to reach a point where the potential that others saw in her didn't seem so far-fetched after all. Amani understood that effort and success went hand in hand, and the discipline she learned in her youth meant effort was something she was well-adjusted to. With a growth mindset, opportunities became limitless, and Amani was prepared to pursue them. How did that lead to Nickelodeon? Because that seems like the maybe first mainstream endorsement or semi-mainstream endorsement of something that you really like really wanted to go towards. 
I became fixated because I went home for Christmas break and I'll never forget because my mom was like, what do you want to do? I mean, I was majoring in communications because I like to talk and that was as far as I had gotten. And my mom was like, okay, but like, what are you going to do with a communications degree and a degree in German and a degree in film? Like what are, what are, what what is the plan? And I said, you know, I haven't really thought about it, but what I discovered over that Christmas break was the musical Rent. And I decided I was going to live in New York. I was like, I'm going to live in New York. And to live in New York, I need to intern in New York. And so I went to the Career Center. And um, well, one, I thought that one was a one-time thing. With a resume, I didn't have a resume. And they were like, okay, to be honest, your resume, there's nothing on this resume. <laughs> they didn't think the show was good enough? <laughs> they have. They were like, you have Itzamani, Abercrombie and & Fitch, and a minor in German. Like, this is not enough. So what I started doing was I went... I got local internships and then I applied for Nickelodeon and I got it. And I just remember the first time going to New York, I just, I thought I was going to lose my mind. I had never seen anything like that. What do you think New York represented to you? And like, why was, why was it so like ever present in your mind as something that like, I really want to do this thing? I think it brought out that inner athlete in me that this was where you came if you had big ambitions and this is where you came if you wanted to be again where the people are. And this was the room where it happened. Hamilton didn't exist yet, but that was what it was. And I I remember going to Times Square at like 1 a.m. and it was just full of life. And I thought, these are my people. Like, this is where I want to live. And I think that started my love affair with New York City. Anything could happen. Monty's right. Anything can happen in a city like New York. It's a city that brims with possibility, an ever-churning world waiting for someone to latch on and join it. And Amani did. But it wasn't the shopping on Fifth Avenue or the celebrity sightings that pulled her into the city skyline. It was about connection and community. And this was the appeal of the musical Rent. It doesn't paint Manhattan living conditions in its most flattering, glamorous light. What it does do, however, is portray an energized bohemian community filled with passionate characters who support each other through a series of harrowing crises. This community depicted on stage was a representation of something bigger. There are over 200 different languages spoken in New York, with over 40% of the population having come from another country. It's a city that breeds creativity and culture, and Amani was ready for it. So going from Nickelodeon to NBC, how did you go towards that? Um, because like NBC Universal seems like the epitome of like entertainment and maybe a lot of the things that you were searching for and that like vibrancy and that potential. For sure. And I think what I realized with that first internship at Nickelodeon was that I was going to need even more experience to compete because the other interns at Nickelodeon had like six internships and I had one internship. And I thought, okay, what do you want to do in New York? And I thought, I want to work in talent. I want to be an agent. And I looked them all up and I was like, creative artist agency, I want to work at CAA. And so I applied for a CAA internship in New York. I got it, but it didn't start until I think end of June. And 
the NYU dorms opened in May. So I was like, wait, I can't be in New York for a month and not be doing anything. And so I thought, okay, I need to find another internship. I'll work for free. I just need another internship. And I ended up finding this amazing guy, Octavius Crouch on Twitter. And I just DM'd him and I was like, can I please be your intern for free? And he was like, uh, I don't have a program. And I was like, that's okay. I'll make up the program. I'll just, I'll just like staple things. I'll organize things. And he was like, uh, okay. I feel like a lot of people, especially going from like maybe a smaller town to like one of those big cities like LA or New York, at a loss of how to materialize opportunity, which it seems like something that you're just continually and constantly doing. So like, what was your thought process behind this outreach and how are you positioning yourself so you could maybe get this opportunity or create this opportunity out of seemingly nothing? I think for me, it was putting myself in the other person's shoes. Like this is an executive who's hanging out with other executives who's very busy. And so I thought, how can I be an ad? Like, how can I be valuable that he just can't say no? And again, there was a little bit of that Disney character. If you work hard, you can get it. I think that was in me. And so I reached out to him and I already had the pitch. I was like, I can help declutter your office. I can help organize, you know, these mixtapes. You don't have to pay me. I'll staple everything. I'll organize everything. My dad was like, let me just Google this guy. Like, is this real? But uh, it was real. And I think even I was surprised it was real. But there I was on May 15th at Universal Music Group. And I had created this internship. And he became like a mentor of mine. um, All because I just kind of was like, please just let me help you so that I can learn from you. And he said yes. And what was that like? Was it what you hoped it would be? It was amazing. It was like DJ Khaled, like walking up and down the halls. That one yes granted Imani the kind of access most people can only dream of. But she was also offering something most people have a hard time passing up, free labor. She had a sparse resume, sure, but Imani refused to scale down her ambitions. Once again, she was tapping into the same mindset that had carried her this far through ballet, a track scholarship, a big move. Ultimately, Amani held the core belief that success comes from effort, that the potential for progress is rooted within her. She just had to tap into it. And that's what she did. Dedication and fearlessness transformed her from an industry outsider to a cultural gatekeeper. And it would be those same qualities that would guide her after graduation. It's so cool. You create this job for yourself that you wanted. And I love the, the advice that you gave for that think about what that person would want and provide value, which is something so important, I think, honestly, at any stage in someone's career. With that month, it comes to a close, going towards graduation and thinking about life after graduation. What are you thinking about that? Yeah, I went to the career fair and I thought, okay, how am I going to get a job in New York? And at the career fair, at at the very last booth was a booth about the PAGE program at NBC page program was like the MBA if you wanted to work in television and it was your foot in the door and I fixated on that page program I became obsessed with the page program I researched all the questions they ask you and I thought okay this is how I'm going to get to New York all I have to do is just nail this audition (laughs) it wasn't an audition I have to nail this interview 
for the third round interview, you had to present a project in two minutes. And that was the whole interview. And I researched, you know, people had done tap dancing, people had made cakes, people had done monologues. I decided I was going to make a life-size pop-up book. It was the size of like half of my body. And I created this pop-up book that had everything in it from my internships to why I should work at NBC. And I had no backup plans. I remember being home over Christmas break and getting a phone call from a woman named Miss Natasha. And she was telling me, to pack my bags, I was coming to New York City because I had been accepted into the PAGE program. This was a kickstart to her career. And soon after, she'd become Andy Cohen's publicist at Bravo. It's these kind of opportunities that made her think she was somewhere special. What did you think of your journey so far in New York? I mean, it really, I got to say, it was supporting the argument. It was supporting the argument that one, New York was magical and that this was the place where those kind of situations could happen. That if you put yourself in the right room and you were prepared, that really incredible things could happen. And I think, again, it's like I wasn't above anything. Like as a coordinator, I booked the cars, I got the coffee, I ran and got the salads. Like I just really wanted to understand top to bottom how everything worked. I also want to like, I guess, pass by like a quote that um, this is from Scott Galloway. And he's like, one of the rules of having a successful time in your 20s, and I guess just like being a young adult is moving to a city, hopefully a big city, because that's where like the density of opportunity lies. How does that thought square with your experience? And do you think there's truth to that? Yeah, I mean, I, I couldn't agree more. I think that, you know, the proximity, like you said, New York is a living, breathing organism. And I think it really does reward the fearless. And there's also this kind of like leveling. I mean, I loved that you could be on a subway with the CEO and the intern. Like there was this ambition that I could see myself, you know, working hard. And I, I think, again, it's like you've got to know when to get off of that 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 merry-go-round or you'll you'll be there forever. But for me, it was exhilarating. Like I felt like I was waking up and I was walking amongst giants. Like I was looking at these huge buildings that, you know, being a little girl from Atlanta, I had looked at New York and thought, I mean, maybe one day, but to be walking down Fifth Avenue or, you know, I, at one point I lived on Wall Street and I just remembered having a lot of out-of-body experiences that this was real life. I often ask my friend, they laugh at me all the time. I will look at them and say, is this real life? Because it just feels so much like it's a, like it's a dream. The image of walking among giants, being encompassed by the shadows of towering buildings in a city that never sleeps does sound like the dream. But it wasn't a dream. It was Amani's reality. She had pushed her way into a world that few gain access to. She knew how to get noticed, how to stand out and set herself apart from the sea of people that filled New York's sidewalks. Yes, she was competing against thousands of other people for the opportunities she sought, but that was part of the thrill. The vitality of New York was being fed by young people seeking community, culture, and opportunity. The city is where Amani wanted to be, and she knew how to make it dance to her tune. Now she could help others do the same. Going back to NBC Universal, so something that I think is like really important is like accepting mentorship, but also giving it. 
And you mentioned before that you had this revolving door of informationals. What did you mean by that? So I guess, you know, word travels fast, you know, from this page program. And I guess it had kind of become known that if you emailed me and wanted an informational, the answer was yes, and you could come. At one point, my my boss was like, who, who, who are all these people? So I was probably doing, I mean, at one point, like two informationals a day, five days a week, you know, for a really long time, just because I knew what it felt like to be curious and to want to know, you know, how you could take your career to the next level. I'd love to hear like a story that you feel like embodies those informationals where you felt like you helped someone that maybe had the drive to achieve, but maybe not the direction. A thousand percent. I mean, I'll never forget a young lady that came into my office. She didn't know what direction she wanted to do. She knew she wanted to work in entertainment, but she wasn't sure. And I gave her the exact same advice that had been given to me, which was you should make a list of all the things you love. It doesn't have to be work related, just all the things you love and all the things you can't stand. Draw a line down a piece of paper and make a list and then objectively step back from that list and see what rises to the top. So for me, I love, love, love television. I love theme parks. I love being around people. What I don't like are numbers. I don't want to be in a gray cubicle building. And I also don't want to be in a role where like I have to kind of always be depending on other people to to, like do my job. Like I want to have some autonomy and thinking about all of those things, being a publicist is perfect for all of those things. I can, you know, create my own strategy. I can talk to people. I get to run all around New York City. I go to press events. And I told her, eliminate the things you don't want to do because it's just like dating. Knowing what you don't want to do is just as important as knowing what you do want. And her eyes just kind of like got big and she was like, right. Amani remembered what it was like to feel small in a big city. What seems like endless opportunity can wind up being more daunting than reassuring. And the prospect of finding a job you love often seems like a pipe dream. But from Amani's perspective, it isn't a pipe dream. It's attainable, even realistic, if you know how to approach it. If you look at something and say, "Uh, I don't see myself doing that or even wanting to do that, then veto it and move on. And if, like Amani, you're able to assure yourself that you can do something, that you want to do something, if you're willing to just try, you might find that more doors open for you than you thought. At the end of the day, here Amani was, with a job she loved, looking at a wide-eyed 18-year-old hoping to do the same. The impact she had on other people's lives expanded beyond the workplace, and now she looked to foster another community that reflected this. Seeing these pods of community that you're creating with your friends back at college with the It's Amani show, I think like all this community leads up to a moment when you invite a bunch of friends to your one-bedroom apartment in 2016. Can you tell me about the circumstances surrounding that like initiative? A thousand percent. I thought, you know, you need to be more involved in your community, Imani. Like, what do you do, you know, steeped in community? And so I actually went to a few meetups around the city and I thought, oh, I'll join the board of this or, oh, I'll be the event planner for that. But when I would go to the events, no disrespect, it just was like, "Mm, I wouldn't have done it like that. Or like the event wouldn't start on time or the chicken fingers were cold. And I just was like, 
I don't know. I I don't know if this place was like built for me and not just like the aesthetics, but like the conversation, you know, it, it goes back to running around the church and feeling like you were at a place that was built for you. And so I just thought maybe I'll start a potluck. Like I'll start a very Bible study size potluck where I'll invite 10 people over, but each of those 10 people has to invite another person. And I had no idea, but that was the first creative collective was 20 people in my apartment. I made tacos for them and we went around in a circle and you just had to say, you know, what you had going on and what you needed help with. And it could be, I need help trying to negotiate a promotion or I need help, you know, trying to figure out this family situation. There were no like rules, but that was, that was how it started. It almost seems like a more structured collection of those informationals that you were doing. Like you're trying to help all these people achieve what they want and not only just as like a community member, but also maybe professionally too. When you're creating a community, I think intention is actually super important because like it seems like your goal wasn't to create this massive thousand person event. Like it was, it seems like it was to solve a problem at a local level. Can you like give me like a little bit more insight into how much were you trying to say like, this is what the event is. Let me tell you what it is. And how much do you allow it to develop naturally? Like this, I guess, idea of the balance between structure and like evolution. I, I love that because I think even from the first creative collective, you know, it wasn't it's Amani. So what I did was I curated the room and then I really got out of the way. So a lot of my friends will tell you that surprisingly, I'm an introvert. I don't actually need to be anywhere near the center of the room. I'm probably in the corner, you know, talking to like two people at a time because I think the magic really happens when you get out of the way. I, I think even as we've continued to scale, it was always bringing what that living room felt like to more people because I feel like people want to be seen and people want to be understood in a way that's just human nature. Like that's just how we're built is for relationships. And so as we've continued to build CultureCon, we really have tried to step out of the way and allow the community to tell us what they want or in the community to tell us what they don't want. And I think that's why it feels like you're coming home is because it's not this manufactured situation. It really is like similar to New York, a living, breathing um, organism. It's interesting that you say that with the um, introverted personality trait, because a lot of people, or at least like I thought like, oh, you have to be an extrovert to create a community. Like you have to like rally people around, but it's like, it's almost better to step out of the way because that's like when communities are sustainable. When you're curating an event or curating a community, you have to be able to be receptive to what the community wants. Anytime you're the nucleus of a situation, it's it's going to be skewed. You're going to drink the Kool-Aid. It's going to be a little bit not what you think it is because you're so in it that you can't really experience it. Introverted community leader. Sounds like a bit of an oxymoron, but the greatest leaders are often ones that let the community take lead. Without dictating orders and forcing one preconceived vision, they can discover how their unique community flourishes. A leader like this doesn't own the room, but reads the room, which comes naturally to an introvert like Imani. 
By processing information internally rather than interactively, introverts take the time to listen closely before making an input. Not only did this enable Amani to be open and understanding to her community's suggestions, but it also made her perceptive to nuanced messages like shifts in energy. With this level of care and attention, Amani identified and provided exactly what the creative collected needed to thrive. I'm really interested in how you went from a couple people in a room to like what would become something, something incredible. What are you looking towards um, to this next event? Well, one, I thought that one was a one-time thing, but I knew that it felt different. And I knew that I hadn't been to an event that felt like this. I felt like after leaving most social events, I felt exhausted. But after this, I felt inspired and recharged. And I was like, hmm, that was cool. Like, maybe we should do it again in like a year or something. And as people were leaving, they were like, oh, like, when's the next one? And before I could stop myself, I said, oh, yeah, we do this once a month. And then they were like, oh, well, what's the name of it? And I was like, um, we're a collective of creatives. We're the creative collective. And I just said it. And so once I had said it out loud, it kind of became real. And, you know, then you've got people who are believing in what you believe in, which I think is half the battle. And from there, what we had realized is we were outgrowing my apartment. There were 40 people in a Harlem apartment. From there, we were able to move into our first venue. We had no budget, but we said, oh, we'll, we'll, we'll tweet about you. I mean, with our... 20 followers. And I don't know, but they, they said yes. And that was the first event I think that had about, I want to say 60 people. And we just kept growing. What changed between having your friends there and then like a little bit outside your immediate friend circle? I realized that in order for us to keep the living room feel, we were going to have to bring in some sort of connective tissue. And I remembered being in middle school and how you'd go in and the teacher would have an icebreaker for you. And I thought, that's what we need. We need to allow grown adults to feel like they can be kid-like. We didn't have a single question about like, what do you do for work? And I think people who were so used to networking were like, wait, what is this? But they loved it because they realized that they were able to talk about something other than, oh, here's my like nine to five. And so that became kind of a core theme. Even at CultureCon with nearly 3000 people, it makes this huge room feel, you know, super small. It's like you're basically just trying to preserve what everyone felt at that initial event and then scale like that intimacy. We were a thousand percent scaling intimacy. That's exactly right. Scaling that level of intimacy is no small feat. It's so easy for strangers to make conversation on autopilot. You know, we've all been there filling silence with such recurrent questions that when we ask them, they almost like slip out of our mouths unconsciously. And then when we answer them, we give these practically scripted responses. This is not intimacy. But Imani found a way to avert these thoughtless exchanges. Her unconventional icebreakers made people stop, think, and listen as they speak with one another. The process of breaking through this so-called ice can be explained by something called social penetration theory. The theory suggests that when someone shares something personal, they wait and see if the other person will share something of similar depth. When they do, a comfort is formed that allows a conversation to go even deeper. 
This give and take pattern continues until the conversation moves from shallow small talk to meaningful, honest communication. So as the Creative Collective grew, Amani would continue to encourage open, inclusive conversation and foster an authentic support system. But this, as with all things, was met with its own challenges. I had no idea what was coming. In fact, I didn't even plan on it. I I had a very balanced life. I had great friends. And this was just supposed to be this extension of community. I think this in my life was that Bible study feel. And so because of that, I wasn't thinking, oh my goodness, in two years, we're going to have, you know, Spike Lee come to CultureCon. I was just thinking, did the wings arrive on time and did everybody get to eat? It was a little bit, I think, rose-colored glasses because I had no idea what was coming with scale. I think to answer your question of like what works and what doesn't, we tried a lot of different things. I think we were like, oh, we're going to have a membership. That didn't work because it kind of went against everybody's welcome. It started to feel exclusive. Our community, who's always been so vocal, which I love, was like, yeah, that's not you. You should cancel this. And so we did. I'm wondering, how do you know when to trust your idea of what the community should be? And when do you know when to trust like the community's idea of what the community should be? Or is it always one usurps the other? I think it's a compound sentence. As the creative collective, we start the sentence and then we leave a blank and allow the community to finish the sentence. We are nothing without community. I think one begets the other where it's like, okay, community, we're thinking this, but how would you like to see it? And then they let us know, like they were the reason they said, you know, you need to have a bigger tent at CultureCon. We want more skill-based workshops. And so the next year we tripled the tent because our community told us to. And sure enough, the tent even then was busting at the seams, but it wasn't a mystery because we just asked them and they always tell us, they always do. By encouraging a vocal community, Amani was able to prevent them from becoming exclusive, the complete opposite of what had made the collective so special to begin with. Openness and acceptance is the very ethos of the creative collective, and it's what makes Amani's leadership so effective. A study by Harvard Business Review shows that when teams incorporate a diverse range of thinking into their decision-making, they become significantly faster and more successful than teams that are coming at things from one dominant point of view. By allowing diverging opinions and ideas to be heard, Imani is able to boost productivity and uncover high-achieving decisions. Today, Imani aims to reach an even broader community. I want to talk a little bit about where CultureCon is today, where the Creative Collective is today. So today, you know, it's so exciting because a lot of the day ones are still here and we are just a community that's really here for service. Like we're creating these spaces that are long overdue. And I think the the most fun part about it is there really isn't one formula. Like we will talk and say, hey, it feels like it's been a really tough week. Let's see if the community wants to talk about mental health and getting more rest or, oh my gosh, the Oscars are tonight. Let's see if the community is watching watching the red carpet. So it's, it's been exciting because I think we've taken the pressure off of ourselves to just like guess. And instead it's a, it's a collaboration. And where are you feeling like this is going towards the future? Like how, like, where do you see this developing? 
Well, I'm super excited because I feel like what we've been able to create with CultureCon is just, I mean, honestly, like the ultimate creative homecoming. I, I can't wait to be back in person. We're, we're building a entire virtual campus this year in June. That's going to just be so incredible. But I think what I see for the future is CultureCon everywhere. I mean, I really want to show up in spaces and show my community that spaces like this can exist for you on purpose, on time, incredible execution and and you not have to always be running to the one panel at the end of the day to see the one person of color talking about marketing that's just not a reflection of the world that i know i think that there should be spaces that reflect everyone's experiences and so it's an absolute honor to work with our team and our community to create these spaces where we can show up and we can be seen and that's my hope is to continue creating those spaces and to the best of my ability, create as much access and resources as, as I possibly can. Amani's story shows us just how many opportunities can arise when we open ourselves up to life and just say yes to what's in front of us. Instilled within her childhood was the courageous ability to take chances, to say yes, yes to every member that walked through her church doors, yes to marginalized inmates, and yes to showing up 100%. The pioneer of American ballet, George Balanchine, famously nagged his dancers saying, why are you stingy with yourselves? Why are you holding back? Why are you saving for another time? There are not other times. There is only now, right now. Rather than waiting for things to fall into place the way she wanted them to, Amani embraces the present and gives everything to it. From the track team to college TV shows to Andy Cohen's TV show to skyscrapers and to DJ Khaled, Amani made every experience count, no matter how random it might have been. And the more she took out of life, the more she was able to give, the more she listened to her community and the creative collective, and the more she had to offer them. So many of us lack this openness. In an attempt to protect ourselves from judgment or disappointment, we close ourselves off and procrastinate. But people like Amani show us that when we do put ourselves out there and open our eyes and ears to new ideas and differences, even if it comes in the form of criticism, that level of receptiveness only leads to improvement. Giving everything we've got can only multiply what we have. Thank you so much for listening. If you haven't already, make sure to subscribe, rate the podcast five stars, and share with a friend. If you have any questions or comments, DM us at Finding Founders Podcast on Instagram, LinkedIn, or Facebook. Finding Founders is produced and hosted by me, Samuel Donner. Our chief of staff and operations is Jessica Lynn. Our audio editing team lead is Adrian Tapia. Support from Matt Fernandez, Sophia Donner, Aaron Devereaux, Nicholas Guzman, Ashley Jimenez. Tomas Renteria, Nathan Tower, Callan Turnbull, Lauren Yamada, and Maura Lynch. Our outreach and research lead is Ankita Nambiar, with support from Miriam Arden, Sarah Hobson, Lisa Lett, Kenny Ong, Melody Sopani, Cherise Tan, and Marie Vaughn. Our writing team lead is Elizabeth Bowen, with support from Natalie Agnew, Abigail Azardia, 
Elise Caldwell, Harrison Duffy, Alexandra Huntalis Adams, Kylie McCreary, Beatrice Phillips, and Virna Seminario. Our design team lead is Shruti Ramanand, with support from Sohail Amatya, Tiffany Dang, Anna Rivelli, and Allison Wong. The video editing team is Eli Lawrence, with support from Melanie Mack and Linda Tapia. To see more of what we're up to, subscribe to our newsletter at findingfounders.co. Thanks again for listening and see you next week.